You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Liz from frugalwoods.com, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Clark Sheffield from the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Jace Mattinson, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Hello, this is Leaf from The Physician on Fire, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Hey, Doc. I'm really going to enjoy this conversation because we have a, a bit of a topic that is often debated amongst the blogosphere in the fire world, and it is, should I pursue fat fire? And we have a variety of guests on here that are going to share their opinions on the topic. So, we'll start with Physician on Fire. Can you give us a quick intro, please? So I'm a 43-year-old anesthesiologist, and I'll be a retired 43-year-old anesthesiologist pretty soon. I have a a plan to leave my job this summer and uh, will be kind of living what I guess would be pretty close to what most would consider a fat fire lifestyle. Yeah, and you talk a lot about uh, fat fire, so we're looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that more. All right, let's switch over to Liz. Can you give us a quick intro, please? Hi, I'm Liz, although most people know me as Mrs. Frugalwoods, and I write at frugalwoods.com, and I also have a book, Meet the Frugalwoods, so when in doubt, just type in Frugalwoods. I reached financial independence three years ago and moved to a homestead in the woods of Vermont with my husband and our two young daughters. So we are you know, living the dream with a toddler and a baby on <laughs> 66 acres and enjoying life post financial independence. Well, looking forward to hearing you and uh, Leaf arm wrestle over fat fire or how frugal you should be. <laughs> so let's switch over to Jason Clark. Can you give us a quick intro, please, uh, guys? Let's start with Clark. Yeah, I'm Clark Sheffield, co-host of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where we interview millionaires and talk about their net worth and their stories and how they reached financial independence and, and what they've invested in and, and been doing that for a couple of years, currently live in New York City. Fantastic. Jace, how about you? Yeah, Jace, I'm the other co-host of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast located in Austin, Texas. All right, so I want to start out with Liz. Liz, I think we should make up a crazy mother-in-law for just about everyone on the podcast. So I'm going to make up a crazy mother-in-law for you. And I'm going to say that mother-in-law one year for the holidays gave you a lotto ticket. And lo and behold, the lotto ticket comes through and you win $50 million. How would your life change? So first of all, I have to say that I have a wonderful mother-in-law, just in case she's listening. She's fabulous. I, in a lot of ways, I like this question because I don't see that much about my life changing. It's something that my husband and I think about periodically because it's a good thought exercise of, okay, what if we did keep working? What if we did sort of focus on increasing revenue and income? And the answer that we really come around to is that what's more important to us is our time. And so the idea that money lets us 
use our time in different ways is where the real value is. So I could see myself traveling more, although I plan to do that anyway. I could see myself doing more on our property. I don't think we'd move. My husband and I love to sort of debate this. Would we move or not? I don't think so. We love where we are. I think there are sort of some home improvement renovation projects that we would probably do more quickly than we would otherwise, but there's not really a fundamental shift because the way we've crafted our lives means that we have everything that we want and we really do kind of live in the way that is fulfilling to us. And so I would see it almost as, you know, not so much a burden, but I would need to look at the way in which we invested and allocated that money. And a lot of it would probably go into um, either our donor advised fund or creating even a more advanced philanthropic strategy beyond just the DAF. Um, I would want to look at starting a foundation or something along those lines. Leif, you've actually done this thought experiment on your blog. You know, is it possible that winning the lottery would actually complicate your life? It is possible. I, I love that Liz talked about using the donor advised fund and maybe even a foundation because that is one area that I would you know, focus on even more uh, myself. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're pretty happy with where we're at as well. And it's just, you know, winning a lottery, especially if you're in a state where everybody knows you won the lottery, you know, you can't remain anonymous in most places, that would complicate your life because now tons of people that, you know, know you just peripherally know that you have all this money. Now, having a blog where you talk about fat fire and being a multimillionaire is almost the same thing in some ways. So uh, maybe I am experiencing that and, and that, that might complicate a few relationships. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I think it's also easier to answer the question in a, in a hypothetical because I can say, well, yeah, I used to think I would maybe work till I had $10 million and now I'm happy with, you know, a few of them, a few millions that is, uh, which is plenty. But if someone gave me $50 million and let's say it didn't go to charity, would I start flying first class? I don't know. Maybe I would because it would make like no material difference in our net worth. Whereas right now I could fly first class and, you know, like you, I've made enough money where I could spend hundreds of thousands a year for the last 10 or 15 years that I've been actually working and I haven't chosen, you know, to spend that money. But there's, I think, a certain level of wealth where you know, those small decisions that would seem small if you had tens of millions, uh, you, know, might, you might make a different choice than you do today. Do you think you'd be happier? Probably not. Jace, you guys have interviewed countless millionaires. And one thing that hits me is they each have different net worths and different goals. Do you find that these people you interview when they hit that 5 million or 10 million, do they stop or do they keep going? Yeah, it's an interesting question. For the most part, they continue to keep going. And, and what we found is I think there was a needle to hit for a lot of them. And then they got there and they either realized either one, maybe this isn't enough for the future or two, I need to redefine what's important to me because you know, having a bunch of money, what I thought was going to change my life hasn't. Clark, are you finding that too? I start thinking about the hedonic treadmill, right? So with the hedonic treadmill kind of states that you spend more money, you think it'll make you happier. And then you end up finding that you need to even spend more money to replicate that happiness. Is fat fire the same thing? It's like, do we set this goal of five or 10 million and then find that once we get there, it isn't sating us? It isn't fulfilling that need? So, so just backing up to the, to the question you asked, Jace, about what do people do? The interview we released today, actually, the guy was worth seven million or so. And, and when we asked, hey, what are your goals? You know, do you have a net worth goal or a passive income goal? He said, yeah, I want to hit 100 million. And he was kind of the first one that came on and said, that big of a number, you know, for the goal, a lot of people said, Oh, you know, I'll get to five or I'll get to 10 or like, no, like, you know, I'm good at two. This is where I'm at. You know, I'm good with that. And, and so, you know, we've actually asked several of the people like, Hey, does, does being a 10 million make you happier? Does it make you happier? Has it given you more confidence in your life? And I think most of them have just answered that it's given them freedom. It's given them flexibility. You know, like Liz said, it's given them time 
to do what they want. And so fat fire, your, your second question about fat fire, you know, I think that means something different for everybody, right? What, what have they been spending and what are they at now? And you know, what is, is it spending 50,000 is fat fire to them spending 500,000 a year? You know, what is, what does that mean to them? And I think that's based off their current net worth. Leif, you've struggled with this a little bit in talking about how to define fat fire. How do you think we do that? Yeah, at first, I just called it uh, a, an ability to spend six figures a year, which if you're using the 4% rule, that means having 2.5 million. But the more I've thought about it and the more feedback I've gotten, you know, I've, I've realized that it's going to depend on the individual and where they live. So if you're a, a single person living in, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, you know, 60,000 a year is going to be a pretty darn good lifestyle. Uh, If you're a family of five living in, let's say, Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, go that far with 100 grand a year. So uh, it depends, but I think it at least reflects living in what I would say is an above average level of spending for who you are and where you're at. So, you know, you're living uh, as well or better than, uh, you know, most people your age in a similar situation. So, uh, you know, for us, a hundred thousand dollars a year would count, um, for others. Like I say, it's, uh, it's going to be somewhat individual. Liz is talking about fat fire, just another way of debating what enough means. It might be. And, you know, I think I would define myself as fat fire as well, because my husband and I spend what we need to, we buy what we need to. And I have to say, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts and spent less there than we spend in rural Vermont. And so I think there is a question when you're considering geographic arbitrage, it's not always obvious. I think it's an interesting exercise to say, oh, you know, I live in New York City or I live in Boston. I I can't save. However, you know, I've lived in those cities and then I've lived in a town of 400 people and I spend more here. And so I think you have to be careful when you're looking at just very specific metrics like housing. Um, When you're looking at rent, I think it's pretty obvious. But when you start to factor in all of the other costs, I find it a lot easier to frugalize in a city. And so I think that's kind of, for me, then the definition of fat fire is that I live somewhere where I knowingly spend more and likely will spend more than I would had I remained in the city. And so by making this lifestyle choice, we have really chosen to spend more. And I did this great exercise of, you know, is the city or the country cheaper? And I think what I recognized is that in the long term, it's possible you would see those gains by living rurally, but not in the short term. You know, we have a tractor, we have a wood splitter, we have a barn of tools. It just, it, there is, again, this misconception that sort of sustainability is inexpensive. And it's really not. Growing your own food is actually quite expensive. (laughs) And so I think choosing to do things for fulfillment and not for remuneration is really kind of where I see the fat fire lifestyle come into fruition for me because there's so much that I do because I want to, because I enjoy it, not because it's um, financially wise or because it saves money. So I think as Leaf was saying, when you're able to make that calculation in your own life, then I think you are living, you know, a fat fire life. I couldn't do a lean fire where, you know, I had to count every penny and, and constantly be worried. So I think our focus on, you know, our savings rate and where we've gotten to is um, a lot higher than what we thought at the outset, but a lot has happened, you know, since we kind of went on this journey. And I think recognizing what is comfortable for you is really important, especially if you're looking at, you know, quitting a W-2 job and sort of stepping out into that environment of either not earning an income or earning from more diversified sources that are not as stable. Jace, it really begs a question. We have all these people who are earning and saving quite a bit. Are you fat fire if you have the ability to spend more or are you only fat fire if you actually spend more? In other words, I think Leaf in one of his posts said, well, for him, the idea of spending $100,000 a year would be fat fire. On the other hand, he has the ability to do that now, but probably spends closer to 80000 So are you fat fire if you have the ability, but yet still choose not to? Yeah, I think for me, it's definitely having the ability because I think there's some of us that are just innately 
you know, driven to just be frugal. I mean, that's just maybe how we were raised. It's just in our blood. So really just having that ability to, to spend whatever you want to spend, whether it's a hundred thousand in, in, in retirement or 150 or whatever, maybe even for somebody, it might even be, you know, 60 to 70 grand if they're a single person, like, like we've mentioned, having that ability to me is definitely fat fire because it gives you the option and you always have that in your mind. Hey, maybe I do want to fly first class on this trip. I have never done that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fly overseas. I'm going to fly first class and I've got the ability and the option to do it. Clark, are, are your people you're interviewing, are they exercising that ability? So they have all this money saved up. They have the ability to spend on a little more luxury. Are they doing it? Or even when they hit their five or 10 million, are they still living fairly frugally? Fairly frugally, same way. You know, that, that's what we've noticed is, is they, they go, all right, I'm going to get to 10 million and then they get to 50 and they're at 10 million and, and then nothing changes. You know, and I think it's a lesson to all of us because at some point we say, hey, you know, once I hit this goal, I'm going to spend this way or I'm going to live this way or I'm going to do that. And, and, you know, we've interviewed, I don't know, a hundred of them or so, so far. And it seems that most all of them have maintained their lifestyle. So I, I started a Facebook group called Fat Fire just for people that are more interested in, in that type of fire. And uh, what's interesting is I started a, a you know, daily post and the Friday post is non-frugal Friday show me something uh, or tell us something that you've done that's not frugal and people love it. Like they want to come out and be like, yeah, look at this car I just picked up or look at this, uh, you know, the penthouse that we're staying in. And so there are definitely people living it out there too and, and spending the money and, and maybe it's because they've been frugal for so long to get to where they are that they kind of like uh, showing off uh, flaunting a little bit of the, the fat fire lifestyle that they are now living. Yeah, I agree. I think there's always something right at the end of the show. We say, Hey, you know, what, what are you, what do you save money on? And what are you not frugal on? Right. And all of them will have some sort of response to that, whether it's like vacations or experiences or a car. And so, you know, I think we think of frugality and and how much you spend each year, but all of them are splurging on something. Right. And, and most frequently we found that it's vacations or experiences with family, but agree with you that there's always you know, a Rolex or something here and there that somebody goes out and, and splurges on. I just have to share my splurge. I bought a Roomba. It is a <laughs> robot vacuum. I am in love with it. And I think when we talk about, you know, dollar amounts, it's so funny because I, I pulled up my numbers before we sat down. And for 2016 to 2017, the year of data that I have, we spent $48,000. And that for us is totally fat fire with two kids. And we were like, was there anything we didn't do? No, we like went on several trips. We ate out a lot. We, you know, we buy really good beer and really good maple syrup. And I, I think it is interesting to think about those dollar amounts. And I also think it's the definition of fat fire to have the ability to spend more, you know, reflecting back on that. Because if we in a year did want to kind of ramp up, we could do that. We could ramp up, we could ramp down and, What's so interesting to me is how that comes to fruition for different people. And I think it depends a lot on your phase of life, you know, sort of what you're experiencing at that time. And I think there's an assumption that, okay, I've spent $30,000. I'll do that every single year. And you're really limiting yourself, I think. So I really like the ability, as we're talking about, to go up and down and to buy that Roomba, to go on that vacation, if that's what you identify is going to be important. Yeah, I think it's interesting Liz brings up that she splurged on on this room, but we found that across all of these interviews that even even the smallest item, something like that might be like the big splurge. And then the other thing that's been interesting, Clark brings up the Rolex and we think back to this this interview we had where this guy bought this Rolex. And it's still, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking Rolex, okay, spent, you know, 30, 40 grand. He really only spent five grand on this Rolex. And this other guy, you know, buys a sports car and it's a Porsche, but he bought it used. And so, he, you know, bought a $25,000 Porsche. So, he's, you know, these people still have these splurges at Fat Fire or, or maybe some of them were Lean Fire in, in the case of the guy buying the Rolex probably, you know, but they, they have these items and they're still doing it in a frugal manner is what's been kind of interesting. It's not like I'm going to go buy this mansion and I'm going to spend $3 million on this mansion and I'm going to put a brand new Lamborghini in it. It's no, I've got this item. I really want it. It's, it's discretionary. I'm going to find a way to do it in a frugal manner because that's just who I am. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really the same way. And I don't mind spending money. I don't like wasting money, though. So I try to find a good value, even if it's an expensive item. Um, I wanted to say to Liz, I'm thoroughly disappointed that you are buying good maple syrup and not making oh. your own good oh. maple syrup. Oh, buddy, you should see my counter right now. I've got three gallons of finished maple syrup that we just made on our evaporator. Oh, good for you. All right. My parents Thank have you. an evaporator. I just bought oh, all the my uh, homebrew equipment, but uh, we've nice. made some already this year too. Not three gallons though. Oh my gosh. You mentioned buying so... it. I was like, I thought you were making it. Okay. Listen, I we had a baby last year right in the middle of uh, sugaring season. So we didn't tap last year, but we tapped 24 trees this year. We've got the tubes going. We are yeah, more sap it. than we had anticipated. So <laughs> not, I will not be buying uh, maple syrup anymore. And we don't even really need to buy beer because we made hard cider as well. But you know, that fire, you have to buy some beer too. Yeah. So I think thinking about what everyone's saying about this decision to continue being frugal and continue making money, it's because we're all obsessed with money and we enjoy this and it's a game. And I think, you know, for me, why am I going to buy something new when I can find it used? Because then I, I get so much personal satisfaction out of that. You know, and my husband and I just really enjoy when we can find things for a good deal. It's that is fun to us. It's fun to us to research it. Like the thought of going into a dealership and just buying a new car when I know, you know, the depreciation curve, when I know what a terrible decision, like that is not interesting. But buying a 2010 Toyota Tundra and getting a really good deal, that for us, we're just like, oh, this is, you know, there's a lot of gamification and a lot of enjoyment. And there's also enjoyment that comes in making money, you know, and in generating revenue because we are interested in those balance sheets. But I think it does come to bear on the other end that, you know, we make the money, but we really like to save and invest. You know, I enjoy investing and I enjoy seeing my money used in that way. Of course, I also like paying cash for my cars and, you know, buying a Roomba if I want to. But I think recognizing that once you sort of ingrain this mindset of I'm in control of my money, I understand my money, you can then turn it into I enjoy managing my money. And spending and saving are both elements of managing your money. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. 
They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. So you use the word obsessed in with money and that's, I kind of like that because I, I think that that rings true for everybody on this call and probably who's listening to this. Why else would you be listening to this unless you're always thinking about money? So the question is to Jace, when you're interviewing people about money and what it's like to uh, discover millionaires and how they think, do you find that they are obsessed with money uh, irrationally or are we uh, going about this all wrong? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting thought that, that Clark and I have discussed a couple of times. There's, there's been a few that kind of, you know, had a pursuit in a career. And then all of a sudden, whether it was in their thirties or forties kind of woke up and was like, Whoa, like I've really got to like be intentional about this because I haven't been, but I would say for the, the majority, especially the ones that are, that are reaching, you know, whether it's financial independence or, you know, millionaire, net worth, but you know, in their twenties and thirties, they're definitely have some level of obsession. And I wouldn't say that it's an unhealthy level of obsession with any of them. It's just, you've got to be very intentional with what you earn and how you invest and save. Because I think as we all know, if you don't, and you don't watch it, you know, your pennies just kind of go and, and those pennies turn into dollars and those dollars turn into thousands of dollars. And pretty soon you can wake up and say, wow, what, where did I spend everything? Where did it all go? And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting discussion though, the level of, of obsession that, that some people have with it, because I, I, you know, there's a couple that come to my mind and in my opinion, they, they probably got there, you know, and they, they literally got spreadsheets for absolutely everything. And sometimes I'm like, I think you've spent so much time obsessing over it instead of just making a decision and then figuring out if that decision was good three months later, six months later, two years later, or whatever. Clark, Jace brings up an important point. And I wonder if we're framing this wrong. You know, we're conservative people, at least fiscally conservative. And I think we like to use the term fat fire because it, it reeks of luxury. But I know tons of people who state it a little differently. They just say, I want to have a safe withdrawal rate of 3%. I mean, is that any different than fat fire? Um, it's just kind of making it sound a little bit more conservative as opposed to making it sound luxurious. Yeah. Or they just don't want to think about it. You know, I mean, maybe they want 10 million and they say, Hey, maybe some year I'm going to withdraw three, 4% or maybe some, you know, some year I won't, or the market's going to drop, you know? I mean, I think personally, that's how I am is, is just thinking, gosh, I work to do all this and to live and to not worry about it. Like, I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to be, you know, thinking about it every year. Or I don't want to be if I'm going to pay for an extended family vacation or something. You know, I, for me, it's like the thought and the worry and the, how am I spending too much? Did I overdo my withdrawal limit? So I think that could be fat fire, right? Is getting to a point where you say, you know, I have enough. Obviously, because of my personality, I'm not going to go crazy spend and buy new Lamborghinis every year, but I'm going to get to the point where I'm comfortable and I'm not really going to have to worry about it. Leaf, what Clark says has resonance for me. I love this idea of I want to have enough so that I don't have to think about it. On the other hand, then I look at the people who use terms like fat fire and we like to think about it, right? We enjoy that. So, so what is it? Is it that we want this freedom to do whatever we want? On the other hand, as Liz was saying before, I think we enjoy making choices specifically because they're the right fiscal choices. Yeah, I think you almost answered the question as you asked it because, yeah, I'm kind of getting to that point where I don't think we need to worry too much about what we spend. I stopped actually tracking it uh, last year because after two or three years of seeing what it is, without really thinking too hard about what we're spending, we were pretty consistent. But then I put together a potential budget for our post-fire life after I leave my anesthesia job, and I was having a hard time keeping it under 80,000 a year. I was going to write about spending 200 a day, and then I couldn't make that budget work, so I called it 220. And even with that, it's not staying in Airbnbs for 100 to $200 a night, right? Because we have a lot of plans to travel. So yeah, I think that, uh, 
it's going to be tough to get to a point where we don't want to think about it, but we probably always will want to think about it. You know, it's just, I guess it'd be nice to be in a point where you don't have to worry about it. You're still going to think about it. Liz, I'd like to transition a little bit by pulling up some quotes from your blog. Uh, one oh, of them. No. Oh no. Can I, I just preface this? Like I started this blog over five years ago. So, you know, I may have changed my mind over time, but go ahead. <laughs> no, I, these, these are really important. Oh, good these quotes. are good ones. Okay. Yeah, these are really good ones. So um, okay. at one point you say more choices makes us less happy. And in another place, you also say that making luxuries rare actually increases happiness. And you talked about rarity as a virtue. Is there a danger in fat fire? Well, I am a big fan of behavioral economics, which both of those theories stem from. And what I often see is that when I read and study behavioral economics, I see my own experience reflected back. Because I have lived a life of really buying whatever I wanted and doing whatever I wanted. And I was very much on that hedonic treadmill that you mentioned earlier. And I recognized that that was not going to deliver lasting fulfillment. And I don't really like to use the word happiness because we have this sense that we should go around sort of like enjoying and treating ourselves at every moment. And I don't think that that's really what yields this sense of long-term contentment and a sense of purpose in doing what you want to be doing in the world. Living on a farm is not an easy thing to do, you know, but it's what we choose to do and we really enjoy the labor and the work and sort of the ongoing mental checklist of things that we need to be doing. And so I think it's, it can be dangerous to oversate yourself with luxuries. I think using food is a great example that, you know, if we eat cupcakes all day, every day, the enjoyment of each individual cupcake will diminish to the point of zero, you know, and you're going to see on a graph that you are no longer deriving really any enjoyment at all from each individual cupcake versus if you have one cupcake a week, you're probably going to really look forward to that. You're going to plan it, think about it, talk about it, enjoy it. Maybe you'll blog about it. And so I think recognizing what that tipping point is for yourself is a key to happiness. Because I do think what we've seen through research is that more choices overwhelm us. They decrease happiness. They increase anxiety and stress. And so, again, it's not just a question of sort of unhappy versus happy. It's how much anxiety and stress is each sequential choice that you're making having on your life. And so this is another reason why I love to buy used. When I buy something used, I don't have to read 500 customer reviews. I don't have to go into 25 stores. I don't have to think about what color I want endlessly. I really am just going to get what's there, what's used, great, done. And then I can move on to something else because when we actually tally up the mental energy that goes into making a lot of these purchases, I think we recognize that we're not happy doing that. And so people who say, oh, I just, you know, I derive so much satisfaction from shopping all the time. It's, well, what, what are you deriving satisfaction from? You know, so if you can get to the core of that, is it going out with your friends? Is it being out and about walking around? You know, how do you identify and isolate when it's spending money versus other elements of the experience? Clark, I'd like to bounce a little off what Liz just said. You guys mostly interview millionaires, but I know that you've also interviewed an occasional almost millionaire. Do you get a strong feeling that the millionaires are more fulfilled than those who are still on the journey? Not necessarily. I think they feel like they might have greater freedom or flexibility. You know, I think maybe a little less pressure or stress on them, you know, but if somebody's at 800,000, they're right there you know, and usually they're younger and they know they're going to get there. You know, I mean, like we've been talking about the whole time, it's a personality thing, right? So all these people are going to get there, but I think there is some, you know, maybe a, a feel of safety or a feel of pressure taken off when somebody gets there, you know, but happiness levels, I would say it's not any different. Confidence levels, perhaps a little bit higher for somebody who's, who's over a million or has reached a net worth goal. Leaf. I'm wondering where this whole idea of fat fire came from. I, I probably first heard about it from you. Where did you first hear about fat fire and how do you think it's caught on? I first found it on the Reddit uh, subreddit 
So there's a financial independence Reddit, and then there's one called Fat Fire, which of course that came from the being the opposite of Lean Fire, which is a very bare bones kind of early retirement extreme existence. And so, like I defined it earlier, kind of an above average level of spending and having enough assets to be able to afford to do that. But that that kind of caught on with me because when I started blogging, one of the reasons I actually started a site is that there weren't uh, any sites really talking about fire from a higher net worth, higher income perspective so much. And so I thought that was a void that could be filled. And I started writing about my journey and kind of where we we're at and wanting to retire, not um, by suddenly changing our spending ways and doing things very different. So all of a sudden we could speed up our timeline. I discovered financial independence at a point where we basically had it right then and there. And so then it was, well, how do I transition from the life we're living where we're spending 60, 70,000 a year to a life where we're doing this, but not working. And how does that change our whole spending picture outlook on what the future looks like? So Liz Leaf mentioned briefly early retirement extreme uh who jacob lundvisker i think he's survived at times spending as little as you know seven thousand a year or something like that i feel like people in our community read about early retirement extreme and they kind of think it's cool but most people shake their head and say yeah i could never do that mm -hmm. i think most people feel like that lifestyle is not possible nor plausible on the other extreme we have fat fire it seems like the early retirement extreme life, everyone says, yeah, that's not for me fairly quickly, but they don't do that with the fat fire lifestyle. Mm. Why do you think that is? They're both extreme. Well, fat fire sounds better. First of all, spending more money sounds better. And I think, you know, I think I've kind of over the years tried out different elements of this. So the first year that we decided to pursue financial independence. My husband and I spent $13,000 living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Does not include our mortgage payments, but you know, so $13,000 on living expenses. And we were great. I mean, it was not a difficult year. At the same time, you know, now that I have two kids, now that I have a rental property, now that I have kind of like all of these other elements in life, I don't have a desire to do that. And so I think it's a great thing to test yourself. I'm a, I'm a really big fan of this concept of going as frugal as possible and then adding expenses back in. Because I think most of us start from a place of just kind of spending mindlessly or at least spending very freely. And so if you dial it all the way back, spend as little as you possibly can for a month, two months, you could do a year as I did, identify then what are the things that you want to add back in. You know, and for us, it was pretty obvious. We wanted to go back out to eat. We wanted to go to restaurants again. So we added that back in. You know, identifying what those things are that you truly want to spend on brings it into sharper relief. So you recognize what, where the values are and where all of the fat was that you can just trim off and think, I don't, why was I spending that? Like, that's absolutely ridiculous that so much money was going out the door in service of this thing that actually isn't that important to me. So I'm, I'm a big fan of doing that. Pull it all the way back, call it early retirement extreme, call it the uber frugal month, whatever you want to call it, and then identify how much you actually want to spend. Because I think otherwise you're just sort of working in the dark of your spending and you are not going to be able to identify what's actually important if you continue spending at that level. And I wanted to, to step in and say that I don't think fat fire is really extreme, right? It's uh, it's kind of a, I, I call it an above average level of spending, but you know, most people spend, you know, darn near everything they bring in every year. Right. So if you have a, a dual income household, you know, it's not unusual at all to see a hundred thousand dollars come in the door and $98,000 go out. So spending $98,000 a year when you, you know, have, 30 times that, that's not really extreme. That's kind of doing what other people are doing, except you've saved a whole bunch of money and you don't have to work for it. And if you stopped working, you, your life wouldn't materially change. Clark, have you interviewed anyone who does take it to an extreme, any MTV Cribs-like lifestyles uh, that you've caught on your show? Yeah, a couple. No, but I think their income's also been, been crazy too. And oftentimes, you know, they're just working to live that lifestyle. 
Um, you know, 99% of them are not that way. But I think it's interesting to note that a lot of people live this way, either fat fire or lean fire or these budgeting things or, or see how frugal they can be month to month. You know, like Liz was saying, a lot of people do this, but they don't think about it as we do, right? And the, with, with these terms, I mean, right? Because we're in this community. And so a lot of people do this and, and we'll say to them like, oh, are, you know, are you on fire? And they've never heard that before, right? And so a lot of them aren't as enthralled in like, you know, the blogs and the podcasts and the websites and like learning about all these acronyms in this way, this, you know, that sort of thing. And so I think a lot of people are just living that way, right? And, and they, don't, they don't know what fire is you know, a lot of them, right? They, they're, they're not into that or they're older or, you know, we interviewed a janitor who, who doesn't, he doesn't listen to podcasts and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't even have a smartphone and, and he didn't know what any of this was, but he'd been living that way for 40 years. That's how you get to be a millionaire. And I think adding on to that, what I see come to fruition in my own life and in my reader's life is that it becomes about more than money. So you start to live frugally because you enjoy the tertiary benefits. So you enjoy the sustainability. You enjoy the decreased consumption, the increased environmentalism of your choices. And I think with children, I've come to see it as a really excellent way to parent. It simplifies life so much. There are so many ways in which spending really detracts us from what we want to be doing. And so when you let go of the spending as sort of a definition of who you are and a definition of what makes you happy, you have this time and you have this space and this ability to recognize what you really want to be doing instead. And I think once you can kind of get to that place of, I don't spend money because I don't like consumption. You know, I don't like big plastic boxes of things in my house. I don't like needing to store it, clean it, maintain it, right? Once you get to that point, it's not about the money. And so it's so much easier not to spend. And it's so much easier to spend on experiences. Like, yeah, go on vacation. I absolutely do not track what I'm spending because I'm having a good time. But when I'm thinking about buying, say, a Roomba, I am thinking about that expense. So when you can kind of, A, be obsessed with money like we are, but then you can move past that and you can really have it become your worldview. So I say frugality is my worldview. And people are like, what? I'm like, it doesn't actually have that much to do with spending. It has much more to do with creating a simple, minimal life. So Jason, is there a downside to living fat fire? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think individuals got to answer that for themselves, first of all. But second of all, if, if there is a downside, the downside might be what do you teach your kids and how do you go about teaching your kids this lifestyle that you've chosen to live. And I think the conversation gets really interesting when you start talking about what, what you're doing and how it affects your children. I know in a few episodes a while back, y'all had a, had a discussion about is college worth it or not? Yeah. And, and several, several of the panelists had, had varying opinions and whether or not they actually utilize what they learned in college, but the consensus was that they all thought there was value in it. Right. right. And I think that, going about the conversation of fat fire, especially as it relates to kids, there could be some downsides. And, and I don't know what those are because I haven't lived that out or haven't seen people live that out. But I can see how changing the way that, that you know, children are brought up, whether it's private school or public school, or whether they, you know, learn this at home or they don't, or whether the parents are around constantly or the parents say, hey, look, I went to corporate America. I didn't really like it. So I pursued this, this fire and, you know, I didn't really like what I was doing when I got retired. So then I decided to start this business and now we're in fat fire, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and it, and it kind of just ended up that way. I think approaching that with your children is, is probably maybe one of the only big downsides. Other than that, I mean, God, how can you say that, you know, it's a bad thing or there's a downside to being, have, you know, having the freedom and ability to do and spend whatever you want to spend. I mean, that's a lot why a lot of us work anyway, right? Like you got to provide for yourself. And when you get to a point where, you know, you have the ability and the freedom to do anything and everything you want, whether that's spending more money than you ever thought you'd spend or not, it's hard to say that there's a legitimate downside to that. Liz mentions her kids, and I wonder sometimes if the Fat Fire lifestyle is a little too comfortable for bringing up kids. 
could it have bad effects on them? I mean, are we teaching them that life is too easy? It depends on many, many choices that you make with them. You know, one thing we do is talk a lot about the costs of things with our kids and so that it, it doesn't seem like this is all just part of a normal life. You know, we, this morning I went in at 4.45 a.m. to place an epidural in a laboring patient. And when the boys got up for school, I told them, you know, I was working this morning, by the way, but uh, I've been doing this for since before you were born so that we could have this life of adventure that we're about to have. And, you know, they know when I'm, you know, I missed dinner because same thing, I was working. Um, and then you, you know, you, you know, you want to make sure they aren't just given everything, but they work for things. They understand that uh, uh, you, you can't just be handed everything in life. And so I think we can take them on adventures and have some excitement and still teach them about money and how to be responsible with it. So I think my kids are younger than yours, Leaf, but I find that with our three-year-old, we already talk about money. It's already sort of a part of her daily life. And I think that's great because the earlier that we can enshrine this as like, this is normal, this is what we do. I think it just helps them to have a healthier relationship with money. And one of the things that my husband and I have talked about is that our kids don't need to know how wealthy we are. They, they, you know, this, this does not need to be part of their young lives that, you know, we often say, well, we're choosing not to buy that. You know, that's not something that we're getting. And we talk a lot about hand-me-downs and my, I was putting on a new shirt the other day and my, my daughter said, oh, is that, is that a new hand-me-down mama? I was like, well, I actually bought this, but um, you know, that she already understands. And then she goes around the house and collects her sister's toys and says, we should donate these to someone who needs them. So it's, you know, she's understanding the whole cycle. And I think the earlier that we can talk to our kids, the earlier that we can make financial literacy a normal part of life, you know, the better off we'll be. And so when we go to a store, I will hand my daughter money and have her pay the cashier. She doesn't know what she's doing, but it's, it's great to just begin putting this into context for them. And I often talk about how fortunate we are, you know, not in a way to shame our kids, but just, you know, we're really lucky. We have plenty of food. Um, we have food to give away, things like that, that I think help, help them to understand um, where they are and also how fortunate they are um, to have these advantages. And as someone who has had two epidurals, thank you. <laughs> oh my God, thank you. You're very welcome. Um, yeah, my kids are eight and 10 years old now and they've had an allowance for a few years now. They get a dollar each into the give jar, save jar, spend jar. Um, and we try to give them a little independence. Like a few weeks ago, we sent them to walk to the neighborhood drugstore and go buy a little box of candy for themselves, a treat after they got all their chores done for the week, you know, and, and we weren't even part of that. We weren't with them, you know. We said, yeah, you know where it is. It's a few blocks away. I'm sure you can find your way. Um, we also have a, uh, we call it the bank of mom and dad, and it's basically a spreadsheet. Whenever they get birthday money or Christmas money uh, or and eventually they'll start earning money. Like we just started doing uh, Rover uh, dog boarding. So we watched a couple dogs and, and they earned $16 a piece uh, just the other night. And so that money will go onto a spreadsheet. We actually keep the actual dollars. And, uh, but the spreadsheet keeps track of a balance and every month they get 1% interest. And so that works out to a little better than 12% per year. My bank, it's only for my children, but uh, they know the rule of 72 and they know that, uh, you know, in six years, their money will double if they leave it alone and don't take it out of the account. So Clark, as I listen to both Leaf and Liz, two people who self-identify in a sense as fat fire, if I'm looking at their lives from the outside without looking at their numbers, they don't look quote unquote fat fire. They look kind of like regular fire or just like regular people. Uh, which makes me think of stealth wealth. I mean, is the Fat Fire group, are they living the stealth wealth lifestyle? Certainly the two, you know, the people on this podcast are, but uh, the people you interview, are they still the stealthy wealth? Yeah, you wouldn't know. You know, I think if you looked at all of us, and, and maybe it's different for Leaf as you start to take this trip, I don't know what, where you're going or what your plans are, but you know, maybe then you you know that somebody has enough to to kind of drop their job and go travel the world. But day to day, I mean, these guys aren't flashy. You know, this, this is totally the millionaire next door people, right? I mean, nobody knows. And so I, I think it's, 
I mean, I think it's totally stealth. Yeah. And then going back to the kids, just to add a thought, we often talk about it. I don't have any yet, but Jace just had his first. And so he frequently asks the millionaires we interview, you know, how, how have you started to teach your kids about money? And all of them do. You know, we talked about obsession at the beginning. And, and I think when someone's that aware of their spending and, and knows what they're doing and is that intentional, they're going to pass that on to their children. And, and even those that spend a couple hundred thousand dollars a year that we've had on the show, they think they're teaching their kids and maybe they are about money, right? And, and hard work. And hey, if you don't work hard and if you don't get good grades in school, then we're not going to spend this way. And so, you know, whether they're on lean or fat fire or something in between, I think anybody who's intentional about their money is, is trying to teach their kids the same thing. Well, I really like that comment because I have kids about the same age as Leaf and I've um, talked to him a little bit about when we've talked separately about how you work at this with kids and you're always trying to figure it out. But one of the things I realized when you're raising your kids is you're always teaching them about money, whether you mean to or not, it's whether or not you're intentional about it. And it sounds like what you're saying is people who are that, that you're interviewing, they are very intentional about it. And just like Liz and Leaf are, is they're doing the same thing. And I actually use FAMZU, uh, Liz, which is, uh, which automates what uh, Leaf just describes. So it's FAMZU. And I wish we had an affiliate link to them because that would be a really good way to monetize this podcast. I should think about that because I'm a big believer in their service because I'm not the spreadsheet guy and I want someone to be the spreadsheet guy for me. And FAMZU does it. And they, and they actually charge interest. They like take interest out of my oh. bank account and give it to them. It's pretty cool. Like six five nine nine per family per month, so it's not cheap, but it just depends on where your values are, right? And, and my time is pretty valuable. So I love a good spreadsheet. I just love to get in there and tinker. So I'll probably. So you're you're the spreadsheet guy. Yeah. Help it. Yeah, good for you. I am not. Uh, you, you would think it, I was a computer engineer by training, but I, no, that, that is, I have learned that is not my zone of genius. So uh, let's pull this all the way back to the original question and ask the question to each of you should I pursue fat fire? And so to answer that in the context of the audience, somebody who's listening to this and what is your definition of fat fire and what is your advice on if somebody else should pursue fat fire? Liz, do you mind going first? I always say that everyone is an individual. You know, there is no one right way to do your money. And I think people come to me a lot and they, they want there to be this answer. They're like, well, what, what, what do I not spend money on? Where do I save? And I'm like, well, it's totally up to you. So I think knowing how much you spend, this is really helpful. So 101, track your expenses. Uh, track your expenses for a full year. Looking at your expenses for one month is not really going to tell you much of anything. So get a couple years of data and do some identification as to whether or not were you enjoying life those years? Did you feel really deprived? What's your income? What's your savings rate? You know, um, know these numbers, know where you're comfortable. I just am always hesitant to tell people what to do because it's going to be different. Where you live, what your family structure is, your age, your tolerance for risk is a really big one. We haven't even talked about, you know, some of the more risky elements of retiring early enough financial independence. And so I think while we all, as you said earlier, are financially conservative, we're all sort of much more comfortable with risk than a lot of people are. You know, I speak with a lot of people who won't even invest. They won't even put their money in into an index fund. And so I think you're going to need to identify that for yourself. But I think where you can start is by very simply knowing your numbers, knowing what you need to spend, and then really questioning, okay, do I actually need to spend that much or would I be happier spending less or spending more? Wonderful. Okay, Leif, I'd like to ask you the same question in the context of the lows listening to this. Should they pursue fat fire? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Doc G and I are, are both physicians and, you know, we come from a world where all of our colleagues are making six figures, usually multiple six figures per year. Um, but then people are interested in fire because they're burned out and then they're looking for a, a way to do something different and, and maybe change careers or, or retire early like I'm going to do. Um, I think that if you're in a position where, like I was, you just realize, oh, we're pretty much financially independent and, gee, if I work a few more years, we could be, you know, quote unquote, fat fire. In that case a few more years can make a big difference. If you can set aside six figures a year after you've paid taxes and lived your life, it doesn't take very long to kind of build a really nice cushion, which 
Um, you know, going back to what Liz said about the donor advised fund, you know, that's what we did. We built uh, a DAF up to 10% of our nest egg. And I did that because I'm like, well, I already have enough money for me. So I'll work another year or two and build up a fund that I can give away from for the rest of my life. Same, uh, there are some yeah. cool things you can do. Yeah. When, when you, uh, when you have this ability to fat fire, like be more generous. Um, on the other hand, if you're in a situation where you just don't know how you can do this job for another year and, and you're not yet a millionaire and maybe that's when you take the approach, like Liz said, okay, figure out what you're spending, cut back everything you can see how you feel at that level. And then maybe a slightly leaner fire or standard fire might make a lot more sense for you. And of course there are always different ways to make money later on. But as a physician, if you leave your clinical job and, and let your licensure go and your board certification go, well, you can't go back to being a doctor. So you want to be sure that you have enough and maybe more than enough before you truly uh, cut that cord and, and go out on your own. I really like that, Clark. Would you mind answering that as well and think about that in the context of the some of the questions that you ask of your guests and they are already pursuing fat fire, if, if they would even call it that. And what would you share with our audience who are people seeking financial independence and they're trying to refine their path. What have you gleaned from your guests that you might impart to ours? Yeah, I think that everybody's different. You know, I think it's exactly what Liz said. And, and some people say, Hey, I want to be lean. And some people say, Hey, I want to be fat, you know? And, and I think a lot of people have 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right. Of experience of life experience and spending before they get to that point where they have to make a decision. And so for, for me personally, you know, I could say, well, hey, I want nice things, right? I want to be able to go take a nice vacation, right? I mean, I want to be able to go to Australia, let's say, and scuba dive the Great Barrier Reef, right? But I think with Fat Fire, it doesn't have to be that every single year, right? Oftentimes we think, hey, you have to spend X amount a year, right? And do it every year over and over, right? But it's not always that way. Sometimes you might travel more. Sometimes you might spend more. Sometimes you'll make more. Sometimes the market will go down. Sometimes you'll have a good year in the market or investments, whatever it may be. And so I think it's tough to, to give one pointed answer and say, hey, everybody's this way or spend this amount, right? I think you have to find what works for you. And I think sometimes that's kind of a cop-out answer, right? Like, oh, you're, you're individualized. But I think that's what all the resources are for. You know, you learn how other people are doing it. You have 30, 40 years to experiment on your own life. And you can kind of see, hey, what do I need to be happier? What do I need to be comfortable? Or do I need a donor advised fund, right? Is charitable giving a, a big thing to me? And if so, how much do I want to give away? And so I think just kind of living your life and figuring that out and, and learning and listening to these podcasts and reading blogs and kind of talking to other people, that's where you start to figure it out for yourself. Jason, I'll turn it back over to you. Should I pursue fat fire? So I, I, I actually have two answers to this question. One is yes, because, and, and, the, and the part of me that says yes is pursue that because you never know what's going to happen. And I've seen in my own family and in other people's families where unpredicted situations occur and one had extra and one didn't. And that extra, that, that buffer was always a nice place to have. On the flip side of that, if you're an entrepreneur or you have your own business and you've got that ability, you've got that bone, that skill to go generate revenue and to, to build your own business, maybe you don't need to because if something ever really did happen, then, then you've got that ability to, to go and generate that revenue. On the flip side of that too, you know, you've got to have insurances in place. You know, I've, I've seen tons of people kind of pursue this path and then either they're underinsured on the health side or they're under, underinsured on the uh, disability side. And it's hard to say, okay, could I literally live and do everything that I want to do and be able to pay for all my medical bills if I've pursued call it lean fire and I'm not, you know, and I don't have the coverages that would cover me in some sort of catastrophe. That's where it gets, you know, and that's where the, the conservative side of me says, Hey, pursue the fat fire, have that buffer, pay for the extra insurances, you know, to, to essentially ensure your, you know, your income or the lack thereof going forward. 
Yeah, it's a really good risk mitigation. And the the health insurance, especially as in the U.S., is what are you going to do about it? Yeah, okay. you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, where costs are going now, it's like, who knows what's going to be like, you know, in 20 years and 30 years. And the other thing, too, you you, I think this generation doesn't really realize how long, like we may live longer, unhealthier lives, but we're going to be alive for a lot longer and on average than previous generations due to medical technology and and everything else. So, you you know, say you retire at 50, it's very likely you could have a 40 year retirement, you know, right. Which is long with with really high health costs towards the end. Totally. Totally. So I'm going to give each of you a chance to promote where you are, uh, where we can find you on the internet and what is up next for you. Let's start with Clark. Yeah, uh, we do the Millionaires Unveiled podcast has been mentioned. So we just interview millionaires and, and talk about their net worth. Sometimes we have guests on recently had Robert Kiyosaki and, and Chris Hogan on uh, the show. So just kind of all things finances, but a little bit more like unveiled, right? The millionaire next door on steroids, if you will, where we, uh, we kind of pull back the curtains on where people are actually investing and putting their money and kind of get more into the details. So up next, just some millionaire interviews. We have a couple of good guest interviews coming up, but uh, nothing crazy, nothing out of the ordinary. All right, Jay. So now that uh, Clark has already answered on what is up next for the podcast, uh, where can we find you and what is up next for you personally? Yeah, so you can find us on, on all the social networks. Millionaires Unveiled is is our handle, website millionaire, millionairesunveiled.com. For me personally, you know, just continue to, to keep growing the podcast. I've got my hands in a couple other different business ventures as well in the, in the building materials and hardware space, uh, which is kind of where I spend most of my time. And then, uh, you know, just spending time with the family and, and growing the family. Well, thank you for being on here. We enjoyed your participation. Leaf, how about you? Where can we find you? And I think I know what's up next, but why don't you share with the audience in case they don't know? Uh, so I have a website, physicianonfire.com. If you don't want to spell all that or can't spell all of that, pofire.com, typed in your browser will find me. Um, what's up next? As I mentioned, retirement from medicine in August of 2019. More immediately, we're on our way to uh, Costa Rica for a little vacation and Honduras for a one-week medical surgical mission in May of this year. And uh, yeah, I guess that's, I don't know, what do you have in mind, Paul? <laughs> your retirement that's what I, that's what yeah I that's that's kind of a big deal yep all right liz how about you where can we find you and what is up next for you so i'm liz you can find me at frugalwoods.com or you can follow me on instagram twitter facebook at frugalwoods i have a book meet the frugalwoods so like i said earlier just type in frugalwoods you'll be good What's up next for me is I will be in New York City actually doing a speaking engagement. I never do this, but I will actually be live and in person on Thursday, May 2nd at the Financial Gym in Manhattan. So if you happen to be in New York City, come on over. The event is free and we're going to have boxed wine. All right. I love that boxed wine. And I want to personally thank you because when I first found Fire, somehow or another, your SEO out one Mr. Money Mustache and I actually found your site first. Oh, me? So yeah, I found you oh, first somehow. Well, and I went down the rabbit hole first with <laughs> Liz from Frugalwood. So thank you for your contribution. Oh, thank you for reading. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Liz from Frugal Woods, Jace and Clark from The Millionaires Unveiled, and Leaf from Physician on Fire. I'm going to take a line here from the OG Fat Fire enthusiast, Robin Leach. May you all have champagne wishes and caviar dreams or not. That's a wrap. All right, so I want to run a thought experiment here. I'm going to give you a series of three questions, and I want you to give me, you know, one or two word answers. Feel free to pass, okay? So let's start with Liz. Liz, are you fat fire? Yes. How much do you spend each year? So 2017, we spent $48,058.10. Wow, that's impressive that you know to that level. And And do you live a life of luxury? I do. Clark? Are you fat fire? I don't think I am yet, but I think I will be. What, how much do you think you will spend a year when you're fat fire? So I, Jason and I, one day, this is, this is longer than you want the answer to be, sorry, but one day we sat down and said, okay, if, if I buy everything I want in the most extravagant way every single year, 
how much would it be, right? So this is like crazy things that you would never do. So country club membership for $20,000 a year, you know, the nicest cars, going on the nicest vacation. I mean, anything you could imagine that would never happen. But if you put it down on paper, it's like kind of fun to think about sometimes, even though you'd never really live that way. And it was like two hundred and fifty dollars or $300,000 a year. Right. What do you think your fat fire budget will be though? Right. I think it would personally. be like a hundred probably. Okay. And would that be luxury? Yes. Leaf, are you fat fire? Yes, I am. And how much do you spend a year? In recent years when I've been working, it's been 60 to $70,000 a year. That doesn't include charitable giving. We have no debts, no mortgage, uh, et cetera. Uh, when I leave my job, I'll have to pay for health insurance and we'll be traveling a lot more. So the budget I outlined was about 80,000. It felt a little lean to be honest, um, based on what we want to do. So it will be, I think in the range of 80 to a hundred thousand dollars a year. And will that be a life of luxury? Yes. Especially in terms of time, uh, which is a luxury I haven't had for the last 20, well, let's call it 43 years. It seems Paul, are you fat fire? Yeah, I am. And how much do you generally spend a year? 60,000. Okay. And is that a life of luxury? Mm, Yes. Beyond comparison for sure. Okay. I would categorize myself as fat fire. I spend about $200,000 a year and I do not feel like I live a life of luxury. On the other hand, I don't feel like I'm wanting anything either, but I certainly don't feel like I live a life of luxury. Where do you live? Can I ask where you live? I'm curious. Outside of Chicago. Okay. Do you have a family? Yes. I have two children. Okay. I'm just, I'm just curious. She, you can see the gears turn. It's like, she's trying to calculate what she, he's spending on to get to that 200,000. <laughs> uh, I, I think you read into their private school somewhere. It's, it's, that's usually where the money yeah. ends up going. Yeah. Yep. The life of luxury question is interesting. I think, I think Liz's answer maybe anchored mine because, well, of course I live as luxurious as I want to, but does it look like luxury to other people? Probably right. not. Right. But I guess that's why I framed it in terms of, of time. Like that'll be a luxury that I haven't had. Same yeah. here. Is it the lifestyle of the rich and famous? No. No. Although no. I don't know, like, you know, making my own maple syrup, that's pretty rich and famous. Okay. There you yeah. go. Yeah. It's, but you know, when I think about my day to day life, no, but I like it. I'm doing what I want to do. I there's think, a low cost to, to entry to that though. There's, I'm sorry, what? There's a low cost to entry to that though. For I mean, making maple syrup? Yeah. The Dude, it's so expensive. expensive. <laughs> I mean, let's tell you. No, yeah, it leaves right. It's actually, it's bizarrely expensive to be sustainable. I can't, we were joking. If we had to sell this maple syrup, we'd have to sell it for like $750 a gallon to break mm-hmm. even. So it's, it's just, we enjoy it. It's like people who have, you know, the thousand dollar egg coming out of their chicken coop. It's, you can eventually reach sustainability, but. My parents have made 16 gallons already this year, which oh is about gosh. 15 and a half more than I've made. <laughs> yeah, how many, how many trees do they tap? 108 this year. They have oh. 24 acres, and a lot of maple. Do they do lines? They don't. They go around and collect <sighs> bags every day or every other day when it's running. That's hardcore. Yeah. So they, they're not um, short on time, right? <laughs> no, no, they are fat fire indeed. And they, they take some of those really expensive vacations and they're enjoying their retirement as they should in their 70s. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.